We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Notre Dame fans, welcome back to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. It is October 9th. It is Friday. It is the day before Notre Dame gets back on the field when they will host the Florida State Seminoles after two weekends off, one due to a normally scheduled bye and the other due to the COVID-19 issue that caused Notre Dame to postpone and then reschedule their previously scheduled September 26th matchup against Wake Forest. So it's been a very busy week at IrishBreakdown.com where we have been breaking down the game, giving you all the analysis that you need to know about Florida State, about where things stand with Notre Dame in preparation of tomorrow's game. And, of course, we are starting to do some new prediction features where we take a national game and an ACC game, either one of interest or B, one that matters to Notre Dame, and we've done our predictions. So we have that uh, on the site as well. So lots for you to catch up on at irishbreakdown.com. Yesterday, Vince Dario and I did the Notre Dame-Florida State preview podcast. Today, we're going to do a little Q&A. So a lot of questions that are more specific to Notre Dame big picture. Got a couple of recruiting questions and a couple other interesting questions at the end. So let's dive right into it couple that are relative to Notre Dame, Florida State, and then just kind of Notre Dame overall. The first one is Kings1977 asks, do you think Notre Dame will focus on running the ball in a short passing game like the two prior games? You know, honestly, at this point in time, I don't think we I really know what Notre Dame is going to do because we're still so new into the season. I mean, they have only played two games. It's weird. You know, we're sitting there. It's 
you know, it's getting ready to get into the second week of, of second week of October, and Notre Dame's played two games. So it, it's a little strange, and I don't think we really know what they're going to do. The quality of the opponent the first two games is a little different. I think Notre Dame was doing some, hey, let's build what we're going to be really good at type of situation, and they they did that, which is running the football, being effective with running the football, scuffled a little bit in the first two quarters against Duke, uh, really started to find their groove in the second half of that game, and then, of course, ran all over South Florida, which was expected. Uh, from a statistical standpoint, but I really like the physicality that we saw from the offensive line. The combo blocks were better. They were getting a second level effectively, really getting a push. So I think that's who this team needs to be. So I would hope that focusing on the running game would be something that Notre Dame is going to do every week. That doesn't mean they need to run for 280 yards every week, but it does need to be something that they build their offense around. The short passing game is something I would like to see continue to be a staple of this, but I think that that can't be the the driving force behind it. It's a nice complement to the run game. It's it's a good way to get the ball into the hands of your playmakers, and there, there are playmakers out there, but I do think Notre Dame needs to do a better job of stretching the field. I think that Notre Dame needs to be more aggressive in this game. I talked about this in, in my uh, Keys to the Victory article at irishbreakdown.com that they have to be aggressive in this game, and – could they not be aggressive and still beat Florida State? Sure. But, look, what good teams do is they use games like Duke, South Florida, and Florida State. And, of course, you, you need to win first. But they use those games as, you know, let's build, let's prepare, let's let's get ready to do what we have to do so that when we play the, the Louisville's, the Pitt's, the Clemson's, the North Carolina's, the Boston College's, and then you get into the playoff and you have to play in Alabama or in Ohio State that – you're prepared to execute those things at a high level. You can't just do what you have to do to beat these teams and just out-talent them. And then when you can't just out-talent Clemson, expect to be able to execute a bunch of downfield shots that you really haven't made a, an emphasis on during the season. It's just not going to happen. So they need to start expanding their their offense. They need to start expanding their pass game. And, and that leads to the second question, which was from Jay Herbeck, which is, can you break down Notre Dame's passing scheme? What is their philosophy, routes, concepts, et cetera? And then how uh, has what they've done so far done come up short and where can they improve in terms of scheme? Uh, he goes on to say, maybe I'm missing something, but it seems they incorporate mostly seam vertical routes mixed with crossing routes. You're correct there. Very rarely have I seen uh, an in rhythm throw on a slant, quick out, or an in route. Yeah, it's a very conservative passing game. You know, and when you talk about the slant, a slant is a risky throw because it requires a quarterback to really have a good concept of um, what he's seeing pre-snap. And it's a, it's a throw that if you don't have a good rhythm of what you're seeing and how they're going to react post-snap, you know, you can throw a slant and, and you know, they roll their coverage a certain way and you're throwing it right to the defense. And, and Notre Dame just doesn't seem to like to run those kind of routes and take those kind of risks. Uh, and, and that's that's where I get that's what I mean by conservative is they just they're not going to run routes that otherwise could be good and and effective and you know obviously we we've seen Notre Dame run slants in the past uh, with success I remember a couple eh, they're kind of under route slant route type situations against Pitt in the second half back in 2018 obviously it's a been a good red zone route for Notre Dame we saw Chase Claypool score in a few slants last year I believe uh, Duke was one I, I, there was a, a home game where he scored on a slant as well. Uh, so yeah, obviously that's something you like to see, but you know, I do think there needs to be some more diversity to what Notre Dame does. I think that, you know, when, when they line up in bunch, you know, you're going to get some kind of mesh concept 
which are like the, the crossing routes. And when they spread out wide, you know, you're usually going to get some kind of vertical uh, concept, you know, the verticals, which is actually a horizontal stretch. A mesh is more of a vertical stretch because you're stretching the field horizontally left to right when you're running four verticals. You're trying to stretch the D, even though you're running vertical routes, you're trying to stretch the defense horizontally. When you run a mesh concept, you may be running horizontal routes, but you're trying to stretch the defense vertically. So that's why they're uh, called what they are, horizontal stretch, vertical stretch. So they do both of those. But, you know, we've seen a couple smash concepts, not overly effective. It just, you know, it's just has, they've been slow developing and the quarterback just hasn't really been comfortable with those reads. We haven't seen a lot of back shoulders. We haven't seen a lot of, you know, concepts where they're running the defense off and trying to bring a drag underneath and those kind of things. And I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if they're just not there yet and they're working towards those things, but they're just, there hasn't been a, a lot of creativity in the pass game, to be honest with you. Now, again, this could be a situation where it's two games in and two inferior opponents, and they're just trying to work on you know the, the cut stuff that's going to be their bread and butter, crossing routes, you know, high lows, things like that, the the vertical stretch concepts or the the downfield you know four verts type concepts that are that's the horizontal stretch. Those are going to be the the base of what they're going to do. And they've run a lot of that. And part of the issue that, that we've seen in the past game is just an unwillingness to make those throws. And, you know, one of the things that people keep saying is, you know, well, guys aren't getting separation. And, and I'm like, listen, when you're playing Clemson, when you're playing Georgia, when you're playing Alabama, a lot of times you're not going to have great separation. Think of the game against Clemson and Notre Dame in 2018. Both of the times that D, that uh, Dante Vaughn got beat, he was actually in decent coverage. It just required a great throw and a gutsy throw and guys making great plays. You know, there was the the even the the touchdown to Justin Ross. I mean, that that was a gutsy throw. Now the cornerback ended up not not executing that play correctly. He was supposed to squeeze down on that seam route, but the quarterback thought he was going to do that, but he still took that shot and he still made that throw. I think of some of the the play that Justin Ross made in the title game against Alabama that year where he had to kind of reach back around and just make a miraculous miraculous catch. And I, I think some of the big plays that Chase Claypool made, look, let's be honest, some of the biggest plays that Chase Claypool ever made in his career at Notre Dame, he had no separation. But you throw him the ball and you let him go make a play. And we could go down, I mean, going all the way back to 2017 – when he made that sideline catch against Michigan State from Brandon Wimbush. I mean, that, that was a well-covered play. Wimbush just gave him a shot, and he went out and made the play. We saw Ian Book uh, make that throw late against Georgia last year. There was no separation there, but you throw the ball to him, and you, you give him that opportunity, and that's what good teams do because you have to trust your playmakers to make plays. And, and unfortunately, what we've seen far too much of from Ian Book is there are the occasional throws like we talked about, but there should have been a lot more of them when you had Chase Claypool and Cole Komet last year. And then the year before when you had Chase Claypool, uh, Miles Boykin, Cole Komet, and Alizé Mack. You know, I, th I think back to the Michigan game in 2018. What were the two biggest pass plays in that game? It was that backed up on third down. It was that, uh, I think it was a wheel route, an outside, like kind of, it was like a wide fade to Alizé Mack where he caught the ball and got drilled. So he caught it, got a 15-yard penalty, and your safety gets kicked out. Well, with all due respect to Ian Book, who is so much better than Brandon Wimbush in, in throwing in, in a lot of areas at that time, you know, Brandon Wimbush made that throw and he he, he kind of threw it into a tight spot, trusted Alexander Mack to go make a play on it, and he did. Later in the game, he throws a bomb from midfield that Chris Fink has to outplay a, a guy for. Neither play, there was separation. Neither play, you could say, oh my gosh, what a just a gorgeous, perfectly thrown ball to hit the guy in strike. No, it was Brandon Wimbush saying, okay, my guy's going to go make a play on this. And they did. 
And, and Ian Book has to have some of that level of confidence. He has to have that level of, hey, if it's incomplete, it's incomplete. If it, you know, But I'm going to give my guy a chance to go make a play. And we can talk about scheme and X's and O's, and there are some things that Notre Dame has to do to get more creative with their pass game, has to do things where they use two routes to set up a third route. That's part of what makes teams like Oklahoma so effective is they're going to run two – they're two top players. They're going to have, you know, for example, let's say Braden Lindsey and – and uh, you know, and Tommy Trumbull isolated, and you know, on a, in a bunch concept, and they're going to run them on vertical routes, knowing the defense is going to overreact to your two most explosive players. And then, you know, maybe you bring somebody else on a drag route, or you do a delay route, or something like that. So there does need to be some more creativity. I think as the season goes on, and Tommy Reese learns more and more about what his guys can do, you're going to see that. But right now, we just haven't seen that. But at the end of the day, Tommy Reese can come up with all the great concepts that he wants. At some point in time, Ian Book is going to have to say, okay, Javon McKinley's one-on-one. Yeah, the guy's there in coverage. Okay, so what do you do if you're a winner and a leader and all these things that Brian Kelly says that Ian Book is, which we'll get to in a little bit? You give your guy a chance, and you throw the ball in the back shoulder, you throw it high, and you go let six foot three Javon McKinley go make a play on it, right? Or you've got a one-on-one outside with Braden Lindsey, and, and when the ball leaves your hand – you just throw it out there and let him, you know, get have faith that your guy's going to outrun that guy. I still remember the touchdown pass that Deshaun Kaiser threw to Will Fuller against Stanford back in 2015. And I was at, I was in the stadium, and I don't know if you can see this on on the TV version, but I remember seeing it in in person when Deshaun Kaiser let go of the football, the corner on a go route, an outside go route up the left sideline. Will Fuller was actually trailing the corner. He threw a led let his guy go route where the guy was in front of Will Fuller. But he trusted that his guy was going to outrun that guy, and he just threw it as far as he could, and guess what? Will Fuller outran the guy, and he went and got it. Now, again, I, Braden Lindsay's not Will Fuller, but he's still faster than a lot of corners he's going to go against. So you have to give him chances. And, and here's the deal. If Javon McKinley gets those chances and he doesn't make those plays, then you find somebody else who can. Uh, or if Kevin Austin can, or if Javon, or if Braden Lindsey can, or Lawrence Keys, or Tommy Trouble, whoever. But you, you you're not going to know what they can do until you give them a chance to do it. And if your first chance of getting them to do it is the Clemson game, guess what? It's probably not going to work the way that you hope it's going to work. And so, at the end of the day, we can talk scheme all we want, but the quarterback has to be willing to give his players more opportunities. And then when he does, they certainly have to take advantage of it. All right, on to the next question. This is from uh, Akaloos. It is, what do you expect from Kevin Austin this week? Uh, and how much different does the group look like going forward? Uh, you know, th- there's a there's a question. Um, there's a couple questions about Kevin Austin, so we'll just kind of get on all these right now. We'll try to knock some of these receiver uh, Kevin Austin questions out now and uh, and just try to roll through these because these are there's some good ones. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement about what you know Kevin Austin and what he can do and coming back. And so let's just dive into some of these. So uh, what do I expect from Kevin Austin this week and how much different does that group look like going forward? There's just so much uncertainty about both of those things. And there's a lot of a lot of hype about Kevin Austin about what he's going to do. And the hype is is understandable because he's extremely talented. And some of the stuff we've seen him do in practice, even going back to his freshman year, his first fall camp has been really impressive. I remember writing a couple springs ago, just watching him and Phil Jerkovic just absolutely shred on some practices, just shred the second second string defense in seven on sevens and some team periods, just throwing the ball downfield. And, you know, again, there was times when he was covered and the quarterback just put it where only Kevin Austin had a chance to do, to go catch it. And he did. And so he's that kind of player. I think Javon McKinley can be that kind of player. 
and so Ian Book's going to have to get out there. But my expectations for this game are it just depends on how much they target him. I have an article at irishbreakdown.com where I kind of go over four things that Notre Dame needs to do with Kevin Austin beginning this week and then kind of building um, building into it. So, uh, you know, I think it. I think that when you when you look at him, it's it's when he's in the game, whether it's 15 or 20 snaps, because I don't expect him to play a ton this week, they need to be intentional about getting him the football. That means screens. That means designing concepts where it's like, hey, Ian, you're throwing to Kevin unless he's flat out double or triple covered. You know what I mean? You know, maybe you put him in and, uh, you know, two tight end set or a three tight end set and you run a play action post route or a play action goal route where you just say, throw it, throw it to him. And even if it's incomplete, I, I, we've brought this up plenty of times, but, you know, Lou Samoji would tell the story of, you know, what Lou Holtz had had Tony Rice do the first time Rocket Ismail took the field against Michigan. He told Tony Rice, throw it to Rocket and throw it as far as you can. Because he understood that even if it's incomplete, you've now given your future opponent something to worry about. Like, hey, we better make sure we, we keep an eye on that guy because we can't let him hit that. Look how look how fast he was, look how big he is, and all those kind of things. And if he if it does hit, you know, then obviously they're they're gonna have even more to think about because it was a successful play. So you know, they need to be really intentional about making him a focal point. Don't just put him in for 15 snaps and yeah, if he gets the ball as part of the offense, he, that's great. No, no. When he's in the game, get him the ball. Uh, and I thought that Tommy Reese did a good job of that early in the South Florida game of making sure that Braden Lindsay got two early touches in that game, and that was good. I like to see that. But then as you got deeper in the game, they went away from that. you know. And, and I get it. You don't want to overload Braden Lindsay in game one. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it was it was good that we saw that early. Well, they need to do that. When Kevin Austin is in the game, Tommy Reese needs to know he's in the game. And he needs to have play calls that are designed to get him the football. And if the defense takes it away by double teaming him, fine. Then now you've got a big play to somebody else, but but you're still utilizing his talent to make a play. Another question was, if I was the head coach at Notre Dame, how would you work Kevin Austin back into the fold this weekend and going forward? I think the, the fold this weekend, Brian Kelly's on the right track. You don't play him too much. And forget playing last year because he did practice all last year. So it's – it's not like he didn't play football at all last year. It's more of, my concern is, it's coming back from the foot injury. You don't want to overload him too much too early because, number one, his conditioning isn't going to be there. Number two, you know, the more you play this early, the closer you, know, the closer you are to the foot injury, the, the greater your opportunity of somehow re-injuring it. So I'm okay with only playing 15 to 20 snaps. But, again, my game plan, if I'm the head coach of Notre Dame, is to, to tell that offensive coordinator when he's in the game, you got him for 20 snaps or 15 snaps, whatever your decision is. When he's in the game, you better target him at least at least a third of those times. No excuse not to do so. Okay. You need to at least target him a third of those times. That's what I would that's what I would tell him. Um and the next part of the question is what receivers would lose PT with the full array of talent back? I, I don't look at it like that. I I I I'd love to see them play a deep rotation. You know, I obviously you know, there, there may be times you, it'd be easy to say, well, he's going to play in the boundary, so Javon McKinley's going to lose snaps. Well, what about some situations where you have Kevin Austin and Javon McKinley on the field together, you know, and you want to go big? Well, it's a little makes more a little bit more sense to do that with Javon McKinley and Kevin Austin than it does to do it with Javon McKinley and Ben Skoranek, who's more of a possession kind of guy. Now you have a legitimate receiver on the field that, you, that can stretch the field. So, you know, sometimes I think he'll take away from Javon McKinley. Sometimes I think he'll take away from Braden Lindsay. Sometimes I think he may take away from Lawrence Keyes. He, and, and the other part of it is with as much too tight end as they're doing, sometimes he may be taking away from Michael Mayer or or uh, Brock Wright is another way of looking at it. So I, I just say, hey, get all those guys on, on the field. Play play Javon McKinley and Kevin Austin. Play 
you know, Braden Lindsey, play Joe Wilkins, play Lawrence Keyes, play Ben Skoranek, play this freshman, play Xavier Watson, Jordan Johnson a little bit. You know, hey, give – it's like this. I would say every game I, – I look, Javon Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts need to play at least five snaps every game, and you need to target them at least one time. I don't care if it's a screen to Xavier Watts one play, and you're going to give Jordan Johnson a back shoulder on another on first and ten. I don't care, but they that's what you need. That's what Clemson does. That's what Ohio State does. That's what Bama does. Uh, that's what you need to do. You need to get those guys opportunity and and to play them. And what that's going to do is number one in this world of COVID, you're going to be more prepared. Let's say in two weeks. Let's say in two weeks something happens. God forbid this happens, but let's say there's a there's another outbreak in the receiving core, and you lose Javon McKinley, Braden Lindsey, and Lawrence Keys, and now you're in a situation. What you're gonna you're gonna you know you're getting ready to go into the the pit game, or you're getting ready to go in the Clemson game, and you're gonna have to play Jordan Johnson or Xavier Watts, and they haven't played a meaningful snap all year, and then your excuse is, well, you know, we had to play young guys who didn't have a chance to develop and grow. Well, who's responsible for that? It's like the comments Brian Kelly made last year. You know, well, Phil's problem is he just have an experience. Like, like they had no control over the backup quarterback getting experience. You do, just like you have control over getting these receivers some experience. So learn from what we see at Ohio State. I remember Ohio State in 2000, I think it was 2018, Early in the year, they would force Chris Olave onto the field, the, the the young receiver, and and you know he didn't do a whole lot early in the season, you know, but he got he got reps. He he would play a, a limited amount, and he didn't obviously. It was clear he didn't know the offense to the level of of the other guys, and he wasn't getting the reps of the other guys. But that early playing time really benefited him as a as a true freshman. That you know, I think I'm looking at his numbers here. The first nine games of the season. He caught two passes for 19 yards, right? But he kept playing. He played all those games. And then late in the year, opportunities came up. Two catches for 41 against Michigan State. One catch for 10 against Maryland. Two for 48 and two touchdowns against Michigan. Five catches for 79 yards and a touchdown in the Big Ten title game. So those opportunities obviously opened up you know, chances for him to go make plays. And then the next year he goes out and he has 49 catches for 849 yards and 12 touchdowns as a true sophomore. And for all the people as well, you know, he's at Ohio State. He was a three-star recruit. Okay, he was, I think 247 had him as the number 399 player in the country. Okay, Notre Dame has a lot of dudes ranked higher than that. If your if your if your argument to me is, well, you know, they don't they don't have those highly ranked recruits that Ohio State has. Three star recruit. Okay. But you got to build those guys in. And, and so that's how I would look at it. So I wouldn't look at it as I mean, guys are gonna lose PT. I just I I wouldn't look at it like that, and I definitely wouldn't frame it around them. Who is Nathan Atkins asking? Now, by the way, Nathan Atkins is a guy that right now is is writing, doing some recruiting stuff for us, and so far has done a really good job. So I'm hoping that this is going to something that we can work out here moving forward, but he does a really good job. So keep an eye out on Nathan Atkins on the site and on Twitter. But he says, who is going to be the receiver to step up and become the primary target on offense between McKinley, Lindsay, and now Austin returning. There's three guys with a lot of hype and limited production. That's a great point. I mean, limited hype, or a limited production, but a lot of hype. And the hype to me is justified. And, and we've seen from Braden Lindsay, we've seen some, some big time plays, but you know, is, is Braden Lindsay, the kind of guy that can go out and catch five or six balls and big time throws like a Will Fuller did. I don't think he's that guy, or at least he hasn't proven it to be that guy yet. Uh, you know, is Kevin Austin going to be that guy? Hard for me to know. He guy has five career catches. Didn't play all last year. Didn't play in the first two games. Uh, is it Javon McKinley? He's flashed it, but then, He'll disappear at times. I don't know who that guy is. I think the the best 
go-to guy that they have right now is Tommy Trumbull, and he still is developing his game. I think what I what I look for is I don't I don't think you necessarily need a a quote unquote go-to guy. I think you need guys that can be go-to guys, and and they're going to be different each week, and that's also going to be part of uh, of Ian Book saying, hey. I'm going to give these guys opportunities because there's going to be weeks when the other team is going to go out and and they're going to you know they're going to want to key on Kevin Austin and they're going to try to take him out or they're going to try to take out Tommy Trumbull or whoever else and you got to say hey I got I got to build around these guys too you know and I think last year you know it was so focused on Chase Claypool and Cole Komet that you missed opportunities to get other guys along and team that I point to is Ohio State last year you, you look at Ohio State 14 games Average 263.1 passing yards per game. Justin Fields and the other quarterbacks threw for 3,684 yards, which is, you know, a pretty good season. You know, they were a good running team, but but that's that's good production. You know, 263.1 yards per game measures up pretty closely to Notre Dame, who was at 252.2 yards per game. So it's about t- not even 10 yards more. Well, you look at Notre Dame, and, and you had Chase Claypool that dominated a big chunk of your catches. You had Claypool with 66 and 1,037. Cole Komet had 43 for 515. And Chris Fink had 41 for 456. After that, it was 16, 11, 11, 13, 10, 15, 13. A lot of those were to running backs. And, and you look at a guy like uh, Lawrence Keyes, for example, caught 13 passes. I think like nine or ten of them were in the first three games. And then, you know, once he you know once he got back – once um, you know, Michael Young and then Braden Lindsay and other guys came back, they stopped using him. Whereas you look at Ohio State, who actually threw for more yards, they had six guys with at least 23 catches. You know, Chris Olave had 49 for 849. K.J. Hill had 57. Benjamin Victor had 34. Garrett Wilson had 30. Austin Mack, who missed three games, had 27. Then, of course, your running back had 23. So you spread the ball around a little bit more. And you don't necessarily need that one guy. There were times last year when Chris Olave was the guy that made the big plays. There were times last year when it was KJ Hill. You know, and there I remember two years ago and their their comeback win against Ohio State. It was Benjamin Victor that stepped up and made a huge play in that game to to get them back in that game. So that's what you really need to have. It's great to have a Chase Claypool, but you don't need a Chase Claypool to have a dominant group of receivers. And I think Notre Dame it needs to be more of a of a com- by committee group than they need to be a a team that has a, a, the next Chase Claypool. The next question along these lines is from C Norman nine eight three, and it says, "What is uh?" He asks, "What is Kevin Austin ceiling as a player?" He had another second part at, at as did Akalus, but I'll get to those after the Kevin Austin questions. What is Kevin Austin ceiling as a player? I, I mean, Kevin Austin ceiling is he can be a, a Chase Claypool type of player. There's no question. I mean, Chase Chase Claypool was a, a heck of a player at Notre Dame, and his skill set is different than Kevin Austin's. But there's also a lot of similarities. I think Chase was bigger. I think Kevin was a little bit more explosive with the ball in his hands. Chase was a little bit more physical, but Kevin can do a lot of the things that that Chase could do as far as winning one on ones and those kind of things. So I mean, I I think he's got first round NFL talent. Would I expect that of him this season? No, I think that's a bit unfair and would be unfair of me to do because, again, this is a guy that hasn't played a lot of football. So could he be that guy? Yes. I just, I'm hesitant to put that kind of expectation on him when he really has so much to prove and when he doesn't have to be that guy right away. You know, let him be that guy next year. But for now, work him into the rotation, spread the ball around, have plays that are designed for him, have some plays that are designed for, 
you know, Braden Lindsey, Tommy Trumbull, Javon McKinley, spread the ball around. You've got a lot of weapons. Spread the ball around. And then, you know, there will be times in clutch situations of games where maybe you are going to get him or a Braden Lindsey more designed in the clutch moments, but you got to give him an opportunity to kind of get his feet wet before you start thinking he's going to go out and be the next Chase Claypool. So uh, the ceiling is of an elite player. He just, you know, I, I think he might need a little bit more time than, than, than just, you know, one or two games to, to get to that. Cause again, he needs, he needs to get his feet wet and get some experience. It's been a long time since Kevin Austin was a guy that they were asking to be a dominant player. I mean, he caught five balls in 2018, caught zero balls in 2019, didn't play snap. And he hasn't played through two games this year. So, you know, I, I think we need to give him a little bit of time before, uh, before we put too much on him. Now I'm going to get to these follow-up questions from, from uh, Akalus. He says, uh, after he asked that Austin, the Austin question, he says, who are some guys you've been most impressed with so far? And who are some guys you've been disappointed with? I think guys that I've been impressed with so far, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of young guys step up. I really like what I've seen so far from, you know, Kyron Williams has played good football. Chris Tyree has shown some flashes. I think Tommy Trumbull's been really good so far this year. He had that early drop against Duke, and I'm like, how is he going to respond to this? I think he's responded well. You know, Michael Mayer's been everything that – we thought he would be. I think the Notre Dame tackles have been what we what we thought they would be. Defensively, you know, we've seen Isaiah Foskey step up, but you know, to to say I've been disappointed with anybody, I don't I don't know if I can say that yet. Other, even even Ian Book, who I don't think has played well at all this year, I the the caliber of the opponent that we've seen so far, they just haven't need him to step up and make plays. And I also don't want to overreact too much to just two games. I mean, he could come out against Florida Sega like 18 of 22 for 300 yards, and and now all of a sudden I'm not disappointed with him anymore as long as he's making his reads and doing those kind of the things that he needs to do. So I don't know if there's anybody I've necessarily been disappointed with. I, I'd say if I was going to pick anybody, it would probably be Tommy Kramer, and, and I'll get to that here in a little bit because we have some questions about that. Question uh, is, do you think Notre Dame goes into the transfer portal for a QB in 2021? I hope not. I just don't think Notre Dame is going to be in a situation. Notre Dame can't just go grab a grad transfer like a lot of other schools. That's one area where the academic situation makes that very hard to do. And um, I just don't think I just don't think that that's an ideal situation for the program. And, and, and again, who would that guy be? Who would that grad transfer be? You know, I mean, it's one thing to say go get a grad transfer, but. You know, it's not going to be Justin Fields. It's not going to be Trevor Lawrence. It's not going to be Trey Lance. You know, who's that guy going to be? The Russell Wilsons don't come along every year. You know what I mean? And and everybody likes to talk about the grad transfer as being the big thing. Well, Oklahoma only did that once. And that was with Jalen Hurts. And that was probably the worst Oklahoma team that, that they had of the playoff teams. And, and, you know, that worked out well for him. But that was because he got beat out by another five-star player. Well, that doesn't happen very often. Their other transfers were not grad transfers. Kyler Murray was not a grad transfer. He transferred after his, I think, first year at Texas A&M. Baker Mayfield transferred as an undergraduate at Texas Tech. He was a three-year starter at Oklahoma. So, and even a guy like Joe Burrow, I mean, Joe Burrow was a backup at Ohio State. He got beat out by Justin Fields. He was not a guy that, that you'd look at and say, oh, wow. That look at look at that guy. And his first year at LSU, he was solid. He was good. I saw some things I liked, which is why I predicted LSU to, to be a playoff team last year when I heard that they were going to open up their offense because I do think Joe Burrow is a good player. But, you know, if they would have landed Joe Burrow, would you have said, oh, wow, we're going to win a national title this year because we got, we got a guy that couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins. You, you know what I mean? So those things are anomalies. 
And far too often fans are looking, and coaches make this mistake too, they're looking for that that next anomaly. Well, those things just don't happen very often. And so if there's a guy out there that that is an impact player that wants to come to Notre Dame for a season, would I look at him? Absolutely, because what's your goal? Your goal is to win a national championship. And if they can get you know, a, a, a Kyler Murray or a Baker Mayfield or a Russell Wilson or a Joe Burrow that, you know, t- second year version. Cause remember he was at, he was there for two years. So if you get the 2018 version of Joe Burrow next year, you're not winning the national championship. You need the 2019 version of Joe Burrow. So if that guy is out there, go get him. I just don't think that guy is necessarily out there. And if he is, the odds of him coming to Notre Dame are not great. Uh, especially when you look at Notre Dame's situation, is they're going to lose at least three starting offensive linemen from this year's team, and there's a chance they could, you know, could lose Tommy Trumbull uh, from this year's team, and and so and they've got a, a rough schedule next year. So I don't I don't know if Notre Dame would be quite as attractive uh, to a, a grad transfer as, as a Ohio State might be, right? Who's going to also be in need of a grad transfer probably, or a Clemson if they decide to go that route. So. I just don't know if that guy's there. So if he shows up and he pops up, then we can discuss it. But I just don't think that's something that Notre Dame fans should be looking for, at the, at least at this point in time. You know, and again, if a guy pops up, we can have that conversation. And then the second part of C. Norman's question was, uh, what is Notre Dame's ceiling as a team this year? You know, from a talent standpoint, and when you look at experience, depth, where Notre Dame is strong, where they're experienced, you know, this is a team that I think should be a playoff team and is a team that I think could – could get to the playoff and depending on the matchup, win a game. I think that should be the expectation this year. That is the ceiling this year. I don't think Notre Dame is a team that can win a national championship this year because we just haven't seen what we need to see from the quarterback position to make that happen. Uh, With all due respect to Ian Book, and I've broken this down a lot, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse or or pick on the kid, but he just hasn't shown that he can make the plays in the games that matter to, to be that kind of quarterback. And I think you need that. You've always needed that, but especially in today's era, you know, you need that. Notre Dame doesn't have the overall talent uh, that an Alabama had, where they can win a title with Jacob Coker at quarterback, oh, or a, you know, or an AJ McCarron at quarterback, or or um, Greg McElroy. They just don't have that kind of talent where they can still win with that kind of guy quarterback. Because the other part of it is the game has changed. You can't win a seventeen to thirteen game. You're not going to see a whole lot of title games that were like the 2011 Alabama LSU game. You're just you're just not going to see that anymore. The game is the game has changed a little bit. So. Um, so I, I think this is a team that can win the ACC title. I, I don't think this Clemson team is as good as it's been in past years. It's still very good, and I don't know if Notre Dame can beat them twice, but they need to beat them at least once, and and then hope that they can. You know, it's funny you almost you're in a better position to lose at home and then beat them in the title game than to beat them at home and then have to try to beat them again in, in a neutral field. You almost kind of want to go in as the underdog that's got a little something to prove, having lost the home game against Clemson, but. You know, again, that'll be a that'll be a challenge for Notre Dame. Uh, In underscore Irish, uh, he asked an interesting question. Not by any ch- not by not by any chance wishing for this to happen. Good caveat. But Saturday morning rolls around and Brian Kelly's unable to coach. Who takes over? And if it's Clark Lee, does he come down from the box? How much freedom does the coach have? Any chance they've got BK on the phone relaying instructions? Couple things on that. Number one. There's no way in heck I would make it one of the coordinators. I don't care if Clark Lee was the head coach in waiting uh, at Notre Dame and he had the title and everything. During during the game, you do not have your defensive coordinator take over those kind of changes. You keep him rolling as the defensive coordinator. 
he's gonna he needs to be focused on that aspect of being the defensive coordinator. And then when he's the head coach, he can then hire someone to to be the defensive coordinator. You you know that's what he can do. Or if he decides he wants to still do that, then he can do that. But it would be something where they would have prepared the entire offseason and during all the pre- the preparation and the games to have him be doing both. If if I had to guess, I would say that it would be a combination of Mike Elston and Brian Polian would be my guess. You know, Mike Elson is the assistant head coach. I think Mike Elson, I don't know if there's uh, a person on the planet that Brian Kelly would trust more in a situation like that than Mike Elston. Uh, and when you think about how long Mike Elson has been with Brian Kelly, there's a reason for that. There's a trust that goes both ways. You don't stay with a coach this long, especially when you're at Notre Dame. I know for a fact Mike Elson has had, other opportun- has had opportunities to leave if he wanted to leave. But he is he would be he would only leave for the right opportunity and Brian Kelly's been through a couple really major staff transitions in his tenure, and neither time was there any question that Mike Elston was going to stay on board. I mean, so there's a there's a respect factor there, and I think that Mike Elston, with the kind of person he is when you look at how he treats his defensive linemen, the kind of family relationship he has established, I think there's a there's a semblance of trust there that, that you'd like to have from a big-picture team. I've had parents of players that don't play defensive line – sing Mike Elson's praises. Well, where are they getting that from? They're getting that from their their kid. And so, uh, you know, but he's still a hard coach, a demanding coach, but it's just he you, they feel I feel like the players think that he's got their back. And so I and I think that as the assistant head coach and just a just I don't mean this disrespectfully, but just a position coach, it'd be easier for him to still be the position coach or they do have a, a defensive line GA that could be more involved in some of that stuff. Uh, that would allow Elston to make some of those decisions. But then you also would have Brian Pullian involved, I would be willing to, to guess, so that way Brian Pullian can make some of the special teams decisions while Mike Elston is working with the defensive line. So I think that's probably what, what they would do. That would be my guess as to what they would do. It would make the most sense to do that. And I don't believe they can have Brian Kelly on the phone relaying instructions. I don't think that's allowed. I, I don't know if that would even make sense because so much of this is – gut feel reaction what you're seeing on the field and someone sitting in their their you know home watching it on tv or or even if they're getting a live feed uh is not going to be able to to have that feel you need someone that that's down there on the field and as far as the freedom the coach has the coach that they've gone over these scenarios they've done the doomsday scenarios where brian kelly wakes up saturday morning and tests positive for covid i guarantee you that they've done that doomsday scenario. And so there would be certain instructions on, okay, here's the expectations. Here's what I need you to do. Here's, you know, we've talked about this. You know, these are the scenarios we've gone over. If we get in the situation, we like this fake punt here. You know, Brian went over it. Pauline went over it. Uh, you know, here, here's we want to take the ball or we want to kick off or whatever the, those situations are. He would have been prepped for that. And they have done those scenarios. So, I think that, that there would be freedom to to make decisions within the framework of things that they've discussed. Xavier Watts one asks, "How much longer do you see Brian Kelly at Notre Dame, and who are the top replacements you see to get Notre Dame a title?" Um, I'll answer this one first. I I would have assumed a couple years ago that Brian Kelly had an, a year or two left. I really thought this might even be his last year. You know, maybe next year would be his last year, but but. He signed the the four year extension, and the reality is he's in a he's coasting. I'm I'm you take it as disrespect, but it's just the truth. He doesn't grind like other head coaches do. He doesn't grind uh, on the recruiting trail like Urban Meyer 
Jim Harbaugh, Dabo Swinney, you know, Lincoln Riley, coaches like that. He doesn't. It's, you know, he's got a lot of things, you know, he's flying and giving speeches and things like that, but that's stuff Brian Kelly likes to do. You know, he doesn't have the daily grind uh, of what a lot of head coaches do. And, you know, the schedule has been is to the point now where there's more gimme games on the schedule now than there used to be. And it just seems like there's a lot of people at Notre Dame that are perfectly content, including a lot of fans. And I deal with this on Twitter. You know, God forbid that you point out that Notre Dame last year went 11-2 and and their only ranked win was over Navy. Name me a, t- a period in Notre Dame's history where they could go 11-2 and and only beat one ranked team, and it was Navy. I just don't think the schedules have ever been to the point where that was possible. So I could be wrong, and someone can point it out, and I'll be a culp of that one, but I just I don't think it is. I, I, I've got numbers to back up. The win percentage of the opponents is different, and they don't play as many ranked teams. They don't play as many top 10 teams as, as they did during the Holtz era, for example. And so I just think Brian Kelly's co- – and that doesn't mean he's not working hard. It's just he's not working in the grinding fashion that I, I think a guy like Ryan Day is working right now, for example. So I, I do think that's going to allow him to be a, be there a little bit longer than you would have otherwise anticipated. So I, I think that you know that makes me think he's going to be here longer. As far as his top replacement, I've gone on record as saying this time and time again, I think if Jeff Brom were to take over at Notre Dame in the next two years – uh, with the talent and the resources he would have, Notre Dame would be really, really hard to beat for a lot of different reasons. You know, and, and I've kind of – I look at him. I think he's a great offensive mind. I think he is a, a guy that is a strong coach. I think when you look at what he did at Western Kentucky, it was so much better than what they've done before and since. Uh, and I think he's gotten everything out of Purdue up to this point in time. I mean, I don't think – I don't know how many coaches, maybe one or two in the country that could have – won the number of games he won at Purdue the last couple years. And it reminds me a lot of, of Air Parsegian and his 500 record at Northwestern before, before coming to Notre Dame. You know, to me, a great coach is defined by, are you getting everything out of the program that you can? And, and I think he's doing that. Now, he's got some stuff to prove these next couple years. But, I mean, if he were hired at Notre Dame after the – if Brian Kelly retired or took an NFL job after this year and Notre Dame hired Jeff Brom, I, I, I would say this is going to be fun because – the one thing he'll also do is he'll recruit. He will recruit hard. And from everything I've heard and read about him, he's a very likable guy, very respected guy by his teammates, very demanding guy as well. And he gets after it on the recruiting trail. So, And I've had parents of play, recruits tell me that as well. So he's a guy that, that to me would be, uh, be somebody that I'd be looking at. And then the next part of his question is, do you think Notre Dame losing big games, Georgia twice, Miami, Clemson, Michigan, has more to do with coaching or the personnel on the field? Depends on the game. You know, I, I think I think when you look at Clemson, for example, that was a combination of coaching and and, and, uh, and, and players in the field. I think Notre Dame had the kind of talent that they could have beat Clemson, but they had to have a great game plan and they had to execute it at a high level. There was a much smaller margin for error for Notre Dame in that game than there was Clemson because – the reality is, is Clemson still has a better top-to-bottom roster than Notre Dame does. I think the Georgia game in 2017, for example, I think that was also partly coaching and partly players. I think that, uh, but I would give most of that to coaching. I, you know, I, when I think of that game, it's it's the epitome of what I've complained so much about with Notre Dame over the years. Is you're playing Georgia in 2017. And, and you've got a pretty good football team. And I'm watching that game, and, and I'm seeing guys like Miles Boykin 
play very little. I'm seeing Chase Claypool play very little. I'm seeing, uh, you know, Michael Young played very little, who was a talented player. You know, Notre Dame had Cole Komet on that team, and he I don't think he played at all. Uh, you know, that, that you're going into battle in that game. You also had Equinemi St. Brown, who played. But you're going into that game. You didn't have Kevin Stefferson. He was suspended. And, and you don't have Miles Boykin, really, as part of your game plan. You don't have Chase Claypool as part of your game plan because you're going to go with Cameron Smith, and you're going to go with – with Freddie Canteen, veteran players, those are the guys you're throwing. I remember the play in that game where Brandon Wimbush threw a, a ball on the sideline to Freddie Canteen, and I'm sorry if it's Miles Boykin or Chase Claypool, that's a catch for a 40-yard game. But Freddie Canteen misplayed it. He hadn't played a whole lot the year before. He was clearly rusty and injury-prone, and he just misplayed the ball, and it made it look like a much worse throw when actually, in fact, it was a, a pretty good throw. And, you know, and then late in the game, you're trying to throw the ball to Chris Fink in money time and, and instead of when you've got Miles Boykin on the sideline and you're not targeting, targeting Chase Claypool. So, to me, those are coaching decisions, and that kind of goes to the problem that I see at Notre Dame, which is, you know, the receiver position, for whatever reason, is just this position where you have to be this savvy veteran to, to get touches and to get the ball, and I just think that's a mistake. You know, you, you put the kid on the field and you, you use his talent. And they just they didn't do that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this. Miles Boykin and Chase Claypool had a combined zero catches in that game. Freddie Canteen caught more passes in that game combined than Miles Boykin, Chase Claypool, and Cole Komet. That's a coaching problem. And you say, well, they weren't ready. Okay, again, coaching problem. All right, they you you get them ready. That's called coaching. And you know, I think of the the Clemson game in 2018. Notre Dame struggling to move the ball, and they've got Braden Lindsey, Kevin Austin, Lawrence Keys, Joe Wilkins. Tommy Trumbull, all sitting on the sidelines. Healthy, sitting on the sidelines. And it's just like, okay, well, you got Phil Dracovic sitting on the sidelines. So, you know, it's just one of those things where that's just who Notre Dame is, and and that's always going to be the case. But in those games against, especially Clemson, because I don't think Georgia was as, as really more talented than Notre Dame. In some positions they were, in other positions Notre Dame was. That was a game where Georgia just made more plays. And Georgia's quarterback, when the game was on the line – made the plays and Notre Dame's quarterback did not. And, and George's receivers made plays. Cause I think of the one handed catch that, that Terry, um, I can't remember Terry Godwin had over Julian love great ball, but an even better catch. Well, Brandon Wimbush hits Chris Fink in the chest on the third down and he you know drops it. And so th- that to me is that's, that's a player thing. Also Miami, that was more coaching. Notre Dame had a better team. Michigan last year, coaching. Notre Dame wasn't mentally prepared for that game. That's coaching. It's also some leadership. So, you know, I think those things have to get fixed if Notre Dame's going to start competing for national championships. And the final part of his question, do you see BK and Book in the same bubble as they both are who they are and the program will be what it is, or is there more uh, that they can do with it? I I think Kelly and Book are different because – with Ian Book, for example, he is what he is. I mean, you're not going to make him two inches taller. You're not going to make him you know, two-tenths of a se- se- seconds faster. Not that he needs to be. I'm just making a point. He's not all of a sudden going to you know, do something as a, as a t- physical talent that he hasn't done in three years. He's just not going to change. He is what he is, and most players are. I mean, you can develop him to a certain degree, but, but by this point in time, as a fifth-year senior, he is who he is. It's a much easier for a coach to change. I, I mean, look at, look at Nick Saban, for example. Look at the offense Alabama's running now 
and have have you know obviously won a 2017 national title contender. I, I think they're the team to beat this year. And then you compare it to the team that won the title in 2009, and it's night and day different. It's not even the same universe. And there was a there was an evolution over time to who they were and what they do because Nick Saban realized if we want to continue winning titles, we need to make these changes. So when they lost to Johnny Manziel, they said, okay, we can't just keep running this big physical 3-4 defense. Again, we have to have the ability to get faster on defense. So he, adjust, he, ad, he adjusted, he adapted. Brian Kelly could do that tomorrow. Brian Kelly could go out there and say, you know what, boy, we need to make this change. Or this offseason, he could say, we need to make this change. You know, I think we've got a chance to win a title. I really want to win a title. I'm hungry to win a title. I'm going to do whatever I got to do for us to win a title. What are the changes you got to go make? And then he could he can make those hard changes. We saw him do it after 2016. Now, part of that was out of necessity. If you want to keep your job, you better make changes. He was not going to go into Jack Swarbrick's office and say, "Nah, we're going to bring back, you know, same coaches and we're going to bring we're not going to change anything. We're just we're going to coach a little better, coach a little harder, play a little better, play a little harder like he said after 2015. That wasn't going to fly. So he had to make those changes, but he still made them and he hired Mike Elko, great hire. You know, hired Matt Bayless, great hire. Brought in Mike Lee. Mike Elko did, and, and, and Brian Kelly okayed it, great hire. You know, brought in Chip Long at the time. Again, great hire. I mean, Chip Long did a lot of, you know, of, of improvement the last three years, especially from a recruiting standpoint. So he showed he can make those changes. But is he, is he able to do it without things going wrong first? That I don't know. But what I'd say is I don't think Brian Kelly's going to change. But I'm more. It's more possible for him to change than than he and book. Next question from RG32. It seems as one of the biggest challenges in Notre Dame taking the next step is landing an elite quarterback under Brian Kelly. Uh, is the inability to get a Lawrence, uh, Tua or Fields type of player a matter of that type of player not wanting to go to Notre Dame, recruiting or a lack of development? Look. Yes. Is it better to have a Trevor Lawrence to win a title? Absolutely. Uh, let's not forget Tua and Justin Fields have zero national championships as starting quarterbacks. Now, of course, that could change this year with Justin Fields, of course. But Tua's only national championship came with him coming off the bench. He was not the starting quarterback that year. He came off the bench, I think, what, second quarter, and then especially second half. So, you know, the, the two years after that, 2018, Tua lost in the national championship game. Tua 19, 2019, he got hurt. And they were out of the conversation really before he got hurt, in my opinion. You know, because once they had that really that loss to LSU, I, I don't know if they make the playoff last year, even if he even if they don't lose to Alabama. You know, maybe they would have. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, Trevor Lawrence won a title. But I, I honestly don't think Joe Burrow, I mean, again, Joe Burrow was a good football player. He was not a five-star recruit. He was a guy that transferred to LSU because he got beat out by Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, right? Notre Dame has recruited talented quarterbacks. You know, I, I still say Ever Golson was one of the best high school quarterbacks I've ever seen. You know, and and their inability to develop him to take the next step as a player, that, that's a coaching thing as much as it's an Everett Golson problem because Everett made mistakes and didn't do things he needed to do, worked with some people he shouldn't have worked with in the offseason and the time he was off. You know, but but you look at guys like Malik Zaire, Deshaun Kaiser, Brandon Wimbush. I talked to someone who, you know, had, to, had talked to me. He's like, when he when he saw Brandon Wimbush as a junior, so he was somewhere else, and so he saw Brandon Wimbush as a, as a high school player, but then obviously didn't watch Brandon Wimbush his first two years in Notre Dame. 
and then watched Brandon Wimbush in 2017 and said, who's that? Because he didn't look anything like the kid we saw in high school. Mechanically, just skill set wise, any of that. And, and I think a big part of that was working for two years under Mike Stanford, who I'm not a big fan of. Now, Brandon Wimbush wasn't developed properly, in my opinion. Um, Phil Dracovic was not developed properly, in my opinion. Notre Dame has recruited quarterback pretty well. Now, is there another level to get to that, you know, would you like to have a, a Trevor Lawrence? Sure. But, hey, guess what? Trevor Lawrence's don't come along very often. And, and you know, so – and he's the one with the title of those three that you mentioned because, again, Tua does not have a title as a starting quarterback. Now, it was great he came off the bench and made those great plays, but as a starter he didn't lead his team to a national championship. And Justin Fields hasn't led his team to a national championship. Justin Fields has as many – Playoff wins as Ian Book does. Now, he played better in his playoff game, but he had a chance to win the game at the end, and he didn't get it done, right? So, you know, he has got he still has a lot to prove as, as well. T-Wash 13, do you think the Irish would be better off right now with Phil Dracovic as a starter over Ian Book, considering what we've seen so far this year? No. I know that's probably going to surprise some people, but here's, here's what I mean. Number one is Phil Dracovic has played three games. And I think he's looked pretty good in those three games considering his lack of experience and the fact that he is at a new team with new personnel, new system. It's like, you know, Brian Kelly's complaining about Ian Book not being able to, you know, really have a good game against Duke because he's got some new players. Now, keep in mind, most of those guys he's thrown passes to in games, and he's in year three of that system. Phil Dracovic's in his first game against that same opponent, against the same opponent, Duke, uh, far outplayed Ian Book and had not only new a whole new roster of players to throw to, but he had to learn a brand new offense and didn't have the spring to do it. And and so, you know, that that excuse doesn't fly with me, but he still has a lot to improve on as well. And if you ask Phil Dracovic, and you just watch his body language against North Carolina, he was ticked at himself a lot. He knew that there was a lot of throws that he left out there on that field. Now, what we saw from Phil Dracovic as well is the kid can make plays. And, and he's a gamer, and he's a winner. And if you give him the ball with a chance to win at the end of the game, you're going to be very nervous about that. I mean, heck, the the game-winning, the game potential game-tying drive he had against North Carolina, he threw three touchdown passes on that drive. Two of them got called back. And they were both outstanding throws. But he's a playmaker. And, and, and the reason that I don't think he would be doing what he's doing at Notre Dame uh, is because I don't think that's what they want at Notre Dame. Notre Dame wants a very – and it's a big reason why they picked Deshaun Kaiser over Malik Zaire. They want a structured pro-style offense with a quarterback that drops in the pocket, goes through his reads, gets the ball out on time, and manages the game, right? And if you have a playmaker, that's fine. But, you know, I don't I don't think Tommy Reese would know what to do with a Phil Dracovic. Uh, and that's – I mean, you know, he's 28 years old and his first-time coordinator. He's only been a, really a coach for three years where he's you know been a full-time position coach. So, you know, I, I don't know if he would know what to do. I don't know if he'd be able to – to because you watched Phil at Notre Dame and he had no confidence. His thrown motion was a hot mess. Uh, and, you know, they just – they didn't do the work to to get him better. You look at him with one fall camp with Frank Signetti and all of a sudden he looks like the stud that Notre Dame recruited in high school. Now, again, it's got to get better. He'll tell you that. Uh, the coaches will tell you that. You know, he's got to make more plays. But for a guy that has got a lot to prove – putting up pretty good numbers and he's put giving them a chance to win games that every game that they've gone on to play so far. So, uh, but I don't think we'd see that version of Phil because I don't think they would commit to allowing him to be successful because again, a guy like Phil Dracovic is going to make a mistake. He's going to turn the ball over. 
there's just going to be plays where he thinks he can fit a ball into triple coverage and it's going to get picked off. It, you know, but you 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 trade that knowing that he's also going to make you a bunch of plays. And Notre Dame does not seem willing to do that. I mean, Everett Golson did that in 2020, and then they tried to change him into being a drop-back quarterback. I mean, we didn't see Everett Golson running around in 2013 or 2014 the way they did in 2012. Uh, he stopped being that that kind of that gunslinger, and, and he became simply a pocket gunslinger. And then that led him to making the mistakes. But because they weren't using his all-around ability – those mistakes were compounded because you lost some of the ability for him to go make some of those other plays that he was making in previous years. So, you know, and then I just – I don't think that's who they want at quarterback. I just don't think that's the kind of guy they want. No, do they want a guy that can run? Sure. But they want a guy that can run as a secondary option to sitting back and picking a team apart. So I don't think Phil Dracovic would be having the same level of success uh, at Notre Dame as, as he would be having it at Boston College for those reasons. Now, if Brian Kelly would have made a different hire in the offseason instead of Tommy Reese and let's say hired Joe Moorhead and Phil Dracovic stayed and Ian Book went pro or let's just say Joe Moorhead made it a legitimate open competition and, and Phil Dracovic won the job, do I think Notre Dame would have a better chance at winning a championship this year? Yes. And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me on that, but that's what I believe. And reasonable people can disagree and you can state your case and and all that, but I just, um, I just think that that's the kind of kid you can win a championship with, and and I don't think that that Ian Book is. And I hope he proves me wrong. I hope that Ian Book proves me wrong. I really do. I would enjoy that very much, uh, but I just I haven't seen it yet. Uh, P two asks number one, why did it take Brian Kelly so long to admit Ian Book is what he is, and that is a game manager? I assume you're referring to the comments he made this week about how you know he just wins. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of what he's always been saying. You know, he's always been saying, you know, Ian Book's a winner. I don't think he's ever said Ian Book's a future first-round pick. You know, he didn't pull with Ian Book what Charlie Weiss did with Brady Quinn. He's better than Tom Brady and Peyton Manning or as good or whatever the nonsense was that Charlie said back in the day. I think he's always kind of known this, and that's exactly what I was talking about earlier. I think that's what he wants. He wants a guy that's not going to make a mistake. He would ra- Brian Kelly would rather you not have a playmaker quarterback that also protects the ball than a guy that's a playmaker that that turns the ball over. Because if you actually go back and look at Ian Book in 2018, he actually was a little bit a little bit turnover prone early in his career at Notre Dame. You remember the pick six he had against Miami in 2017 off the bench. I don't fault him for that. Uh, I think of the interception he threw against LSU in 2017 early. But they let him play, and, and he didn't worry about that mistake. And one of the things I loved about Ian Book in that game against LSU was after he threw the interception, he just battled back and made some great throws to help win the game. We don't see that guy anymore. We saw it a little bit in 2018. You know, he was a gutsy thrower in 2018. You know, and there was a stretch there against Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Navy where he threw four picks in three games. You know, and he fumbled the ball early against Northwestern. But he was much more of a gunslinger back then, and I think – since then, he has just gotten more and more and more and more afraid to make a mistake. And he's gotten more and more and more tentative uh, as a quarterback. And so, yeah, his his turnover numbers are phenomenal. But I think his playmaking has also gone down, and it's especially gone down against the better teams in the schedule. So I would like to see them turn in loose and say, hey, look, you know what, man? You're a fifth-year senior. You know, you're going to make a mistake. We get it. You're going to turn the ball over. We, we get it. But if you let Ian play and let Ian get back to being that kind of 
let's take some shots. Let's attack that seam route. Let's, you know, let's throw that back shoulder seam route to Alizé Mack like you did against Wake Forest in your first start. Let's attack the back shoulders and the outcuts down the field like you did in start two against Stanford. Let's take those downfield shots, you know, like you did against Northwestern and then late in the game against Pitt and things like that. You know, let's, and if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. But if you're going to make a mistake, you better come back and make a play to make up for it and, and let him be that guy and not play so tight. And I think if they allowed him to do that, I think Ian Book would be a lot better player. And, and maybe he would be then a guy that you can win with. Because I've always said along, he's got physical tools that he doesn't get enough credit for. And uh, his arm strength has improved a lot more than I thought it was coming out of high school. He's a better athlete, better runner than he was coming out of high school. Uh, but, again, he just mentally he just doesn't have that – doesn't show that willingness to just to just let it rip. Uh, and, and that's something that hurts them. Question two from him, do you think the coaching staff expected too much from Ian Book trying to make him something that he isn't? No, I, I – yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if they expected too much of him. I do think there's something to making him something that he isn't, and that is, again, this drop-back precision, precision pass that's going to go through all these reads and, you know, Peyton Manning teams. That's not Ian Book. You know, you've got to let the kid play a little bit, and you got to loosen up and stop having to be so afraid of making mistakes and just go play. And if you make a mistake, so what? You're our guy. Don't worry about it. There's nobody looking over your shoulder. You're our guy. Make a mistake, but come back next series and go make a play. Which, what is the what is the big win that I think a lot of people point to in, in Ian Book's career? It's still that LSU game. That's his big win. And what happened in that game? He made a couple big mistakes early. Had a big missed opportunity in the first half. And then threw that pick in LSU territory in the third quarter. But what did he do? It didn't, fa- it didn't phase him at all came right back, battled, made some great throws, and, and helped them win the game. We don't see that guy anymore. Really don't. I mean, that cut, that, and everybody talks about the touchdown pass to Miles Boykin. The best throw he made that day was on the previous touchdown drive. I think it was like third 19, and he fits like a cover two, you know, over-the-shoulder hole throw to, to Miles Boykin, and he gets drilled as soon as he catches it, but he, he hangs on to it. That was a phenomenal throw, one of the best throws of Ian Book's career. We don't see him make those throws anymore. We didn't see him make those throws last year. So uh, that, to me, is a, is a coaching issue. That's not as much an Ian Book issue because he showed the willingness to do those things. But they've kind of coached it out of him, which I think is a problem. This is a perplexing question. Who's your favorite, asked. Um, you know my confidence level in Ian Book is tops from prior comments and replies to you. I don't know what comments you're referring to. And I looked up your profile on my site. This is the only post you've ever made. So I don't know if you had a different handle before. Um, so please, in the in this thread, please just let me know who you are and what you're referring to because uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. My question to you is this. Do you think Ian Book can get past the happy feet tag you have given him? I didn't give Ian Book a happy feet tag. Uh, with all due respect, um, anytime I would have used that kind of criticism on Ian Book, I would have been far more – uh, coach, coach speak, then happy feet tag. So, uh, that is not a nickname that I have given Ian book and the nicknames I have given Ian book are not public. Uh, so uh, I don't know what you're referring to. Um, do I think Ian book can get past the happy feet tag you've given him? I think I just answered that question in the last two questions. Uh, M R M J R J R 26. How much of Clemson have you watched this year? What do you think Notre Dame needs to do to win that game? Uh, if they were playing this weekend, what would your score prediction be? You know, I honestly haven't thought about what it would, what my score prediction would be. And, and I don't think we really know a lot about either team. I mean, Notre, we know a lot more about Clemson than we do Notre Dame because they've played three games compared to two, uh, and they've been more impressive. 
in those uh, three games that Notre Dame has. But this isn't a, this isn't a Clemson team that is as good as past years, especially defensively. Offensively, you when you have Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne, you're you're going to be really good. I mean, it's as simple as that. But defensively, they're not as good now. Are they going to be better by the time we get to November 7th? I don't know. Is Notre Dame's offense going to be better by the time we get to November 7th? I don't know. Because here's the thing. The intriguing thing about that game is right now, Clemson's playing offense at a very high level. Uh, Clemson's not playing defense at a high level, in my opinion. Notre Dame, however, is playing defense at a very high level, but not playing offense at a high level. So I think for me, when we when we get to that November 7th matchup, it's going to be which side of the ball is getting better. Right now, I would argue that the the Clemson defense is ahead of the Notre Dame offense. But again, that's not only surprising when I have always said I usually defenses are ahead of offenses early in the season. And Notre Dame has you know, been out some guys. I mean, there have been some reasons why you could point to and say maybe this is why they're a little sloppy. But, you know, can the Notre Dame offensive line continue to be dominant? And can Ian Book start being a better player and being a more effective player? Can the receivers start making more plays? Can the backs be more consistent? I mean, you know, so there's plenty of time for Notre Dame to get a lot better. And I, ex- I expect them to. And I'm curious, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to evaluating who Notre Dame is after the Georgia Tech game. You know, do they have a loss? Are they undefeated? Is the offense really cruising? Uh, if Notre Dame's undefeated going into that game, I'm going to feel really good about the improvements Notre Dame's made because I don't think they can go undefeated if they don't play better than they played against Duke on offense. And I don't really count what they did against South Florida because South Florida stinks. So, uh, you know, if they play better this weekend, will be a good step because I do think Florida State's got a pretty decent defense. But, you know, if they go out there and, and, and shred Louisville and play well against Pitt, I'm going to start feeling a lot better about what they can do against Clemson because that Pitt defense is really good. Uh, so we'll learn a lot about them, and and I have watched I've watched every game Clemson's played this year. Although I didn't watch much of the Citadel game because I mean why, but I did watch a lot of their game against Wake Forest and a lot of their game against Virginia, and they're really good. They're clearly the best team on their name schedule. A couple offensive line questions: uh, K Moore, twenty four. Tommy Kramer hasn't been uh, terrible, but he hasn't played all, all uh, as well as the other starters either. Do you even consider tinkering with that group? and removing him in favor of Lug, or do you leave everything as given how well the group as a whole has graded out? And then uh, 5Q Irish asked a similar question. Would you consider giving Lug a shot at right guard, maybe splitting time with Kramer? I think Kramer's banged up and not playing well. Lug played solidly last year at right tackle and called upon and is the fourth guy uh, with size and experience playing uh, with the other guys. Why not at least make the that a competitive situation? If Kramer's performing at lower than normal due to injury, why keep running him out there if you have other viable options? Get him healed and insert a quality player at minimum. Give Lug some reps why the ones with the ones and see what you have thoughts. I think both of you guys are onto something. I don't think Tommy Kramer's healthy. Uh, Tommy Kramer has regressed from where he was as a redshirt freshman when he was a pretty darn good run blocker on the nation's best offensive line. And the best offensive line I've seen at Notre Dame, contrary to popular belief, we'll get to here in a minute. Uh, but uh, I don't. I, I mean, look, even if Tommy Kramer was healthy and playing well, I would play Josh Lug. It makes no sense to me not to be playing Josh Lug. Uh, you know, look, Robert Hainsey's coming back from an injury. You don't think he could maybe benefit from every third or fourth series getting a breather at times? You know, then also doing the same thing for Kramer. Josh Lug can play guard or center. Or I mean, guard or tackle. He, he's played center before. I mean, to not have that kid getting snaps is mind-blowing for me. Because, number one, as 5Q Irish said, he did play well last year in a pinch coming in for Robert Hainsey. And I don't think he – he's not the natural tackle that I thought he would be. 
not that he doesn't have the size and the athleticism for it, but he's just kind of got a guard mentality. And to me, you know, because Tommy Kramer's not playing well, it's even more reason to give him a breather. But look, Tommy Kramer's been banged up the last two years. And it would make a lot of sense for them to say, hey, let's give Josh Lug every third series. You know, you don't need to rotate every one like they did in 2017 with, with Hainsey and, and Kramer, but, you know, give Lug some reps. And then maybe once or twice a, a game, you put Lug over at right tackle. And then, and then maybe, you know, and, and you're getting into one of these games where, you know, maybe you're up on a team by three touchdowns in the third quarter. You put Lug at right tackle and you slide Hainsey over to left tackle to give him some work in case something happens to Liam Eikenberg. Because, again, we're in the COVID era, which means Liam Eikenberg could be 100% healthy, not sick, not injured, and still not be able to play. Now, I'm not trying to get into a re- an argument of whether that should or shouldn't be the case because the reality is it is the case. And so who are you going to put left tackle? Are you just going to throw Andrew Kristoffic out there with no experience as a redshirt freshman? Or are you going to are you going to just move Josh Lug over there and now Josh Lug is have to protect your blinds at? Or do you get Robert Handy some work over there, with, which then allows Josh Lug to get some work at right tackle? Because you need to be able to, to give guys experience. But at the end of the day, it's plain and simple, Josh Lug needs a play. And Tommy Kramer's not playing well enough. And, and it's not like he has it, – look, it'd be one thing – if Liam Eikenberg or Robert Hainsey was struggling the first couple games. Because I'd say they both have a long enough track record of really good football to say, I'm going to give them some games to, to play better. Tommy Kramer doesn't have that. Tommy Kramer hasn't been a consistent player for Notre Dame. And he's never been as good as he was in 2017. That's just not my opinion. Pro Football Focus, who uh, I, I, I don't use them as a reference as much as I used to because I think some of their offensive line grades have become just – absurd to be honest with you um and so i I just don't i can't think of a reason other than just that's who notre dame is they don't rotate they're they're, they they very they very little rotating when they do get guys in the game a lot of times that guy's not going to be targeted with the football you know as a skill position because he's just there to kind of give a guy a breather and not actually there to to say hey we're going to get this guy in the game and give an opportunity to go make to go make plays so if they're not going to do that at receiver, where it makes sense to do that, they're definitely not going to do that at guard for a fifth-year player and a, and a high-character person like Tommy Kramer is. Um, it's not a knock on Tommy Kramer. I think it would be good for Tommy Kramer if Josh Lowe was playing more. And I'm not, I'm not talking about benching Tommy Kramer. I, I think as a coach, you have a guy as talented as Tommy Kramer who has shown the flashes. What do we got to do to get him going? Maybe it's we don't play him 75 snaps a game. Maybe it's we play him 50. And we let Josh Lug get those other 25. Maybe that's the answer. And then now that gets both of them going. And now you get to November and Tommy Kramer, whatever's wrong with him, because I, I do think there's something wrong with him. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to speculate. But he's clearly doesn't have the punch and the power that he's had in the past. And I don't know why, but usually that's a sign that, that you know, there's something wrong. There's an injury or something going on there. So I just, there's no reason not to play Josh Lug in my opinion. So I think both of you guys are on to something and I, and I happen to agree with you guys. I, th- I think it's something that should, should have already happened and it should definitely start happening moving forward. SK 90. Uh, what do you think of pro pro football focus is looking at when they are rating our offensive line as by far the best in college football? And how does this compare to your assessment of the line's current performance and its progress? Um, two parts of that. They said he obviously Notre Dame is the number one offensive line so far, and I don't necessarily disagree with that because I think the last six quarters Notre Dame has played really, really dominant football. Uh, now you could say okay, the 
competition wasn't very good, but Notre Dame doesn't control who they play. They, they, you know, the offensive line don't control who they play. They did what a dominant offensive line should do against South Florida, which is destroy them. Uh, that's what you expect them to do. And we'll find out as they get tougher tests, you know, just how rare they are to take that next level. But, I mean, the last six quarters, they've been really good. And, you know, Hainsey and Eichenberg in the second half against Duke, who has really good ends, I thought really handled their business uh, effectively. And so uh, that showed me something. And then, of course, the interior players, especially Jarrett Patterson and Aaron Banks, were just excellent against South Florida. And the tackles continue to do what they do. So I do think so far Notre Dame has the best offensive line I've seen. I, I think they've definitely run blocking better right now than Alabama. I was have not been impressed with that. With Alabama's done as a as a running offense, um, the first two games. I think their pass pro has been excellent, but they, they they're not running the ball that well. Uh, I understand it a little bit against Texas A&M, but you know they didn't run the ball a whole lot in the opener either, which I thought was strange. Uh, you know, Clemson's good, but they don't have, they're not as good as Notre Dame is right now. So I have yet to see an offensive line this season that I would say, boy, I'd strongly consider taking that group. Oklahoma's offensive line is not played to the same level they have in recent years either. So yeah, I think it's the best offensive line in the country. I, I agree with pro football focus on that. Now, however, there was some guy from pro football focus that said, this is the best college line so far. This is the best college offensive line he's ever seen. I think that's absurd. Number one, why are you making that statement after two games against opponents that are one and six? Notre Dame's first two opponents are combined one and six. Uh, and, and Notre Dame, I believe, had the smallest margin of victory over Duke of the four teams that have beat Duke. Okay, That's not a knock on the offensive line. I just got done saying they're the best offensive line in the country. But to say they're the best line you've ever seen, A, either you haven't watched much college football B, you just started watching offensive linemen like last year. Or C, you're just being hyperbolic for clicks. Those are the only things I can think of because this isn't even the best offensive line we've seen Notre Dame in four years. 2017 was a better offensive line. Now, again, could this offensive line end up being better by the end of the year? I've kind of talked about that in the past. I think there's no Quentin Nelson. There's no Mike McGlint. Well, there's no Quentin Nelson in this group. I think there can be a Mike McGlinchey. I think Liam Eikenberg is a – in my opinion, a better all-around player than Mike McGlinchey. I'm sorry, that's just my opinion. There's no Quentin Nelson. Uh, and honestly, as good as Aaron Banks is playing, he's not playing as, as good as Tommy as Alex Bars was in 2017. I could show you three or four long 70-plus, long 50-plus yard touchdown runs that were not cut behind Quentin Nelson but were cut behind Alex Bars. Go watch the long touchdown run against USC from Josh Adams. Watch Alex Bars take his right hand and throw the USC offensive def- defensive lineman into the gap that he wanted him. He literally, with one hand, throws him into the other gap, and Josh Adams cut, cuts behind him for an 80-yard touchdown. Okay, You're not seeing that from this current offensive line. Now, they're playing very well as a group, and I think as a whole, this group has a chance to be special. That's never been a question. But I think to say that after two games, they're the best line you've ever seen, you're just you're just giving me clickbait stuff. That that's it. Um, so anyway, that would be my two cents on that. But right now, I have yet to see an offensive line that's playing as physically dominant as what I've seen from the Notre Dame offensive line last six quarters. So hopefully, Coach Quinn and Coach Watt can keep that going because right now uh, they have those guys playing at a very high level, and, and they're going to be tested this weekend because Florida State is not a very good team. They do have a very good off defensive line. So a couple of recruiting questions. DM Bennett read an article that Notre Dame is talking to Tommy Th- or uh, Dante Thornton every day. Have you heard something similar? Would suggest that maybe they are taking what you said earlier and actually applying it. So he's referring to an article that I wrote that 
once you got Deion Colsey and Jaden Thomas, I'd say all the chips need to go in for Dante Thornton. Because right now, and this ties into a question that Jack Sullivan asks, he says, uh, say the 2021 wide receiver class ends up with Styles, Lorenzo Styles Jr., Deion Colsey, and Jane Thomas with no other additions. Uh, what would you rate the overall haul? I asked Jack, followed up, you know, what do you mean rate? Like ranking compared to other classes, past Notre Dame classes, other national. He's just a grade. And for me, it's an A minus grade. This is a very good receiver class. I mean, a very good receiver class. It's not an A receiver class because there's no guy that I'm looking at and saying, boy, that is a surefire top 10 future pick. Like that guy is just an elite, elite player. I think Deion Colsey has some traits that he could eventually be that guy. I think Lorenzo Styles has a lot of TJ Jones in him, a lot of TJ Jones in him. And if Lorenzo Styles can be what TJ Jones was at Notre Dame, whoo boy, sign me up any day of the week. Not only just from a football standpoint, but the kind of young man he was, you know. Uh, you know, I look at Jaden Thomas and I think, well, that's a, that's a good football player. And that's your third best receiver. There's been four or five classes that Notre Dame has signed at receiver where I would argue that, that Jaden Thomas would be the best receiver in that class. He's third right now. So that's a very good class, but it's not an A class because like I said, there's no, that elite player, you know, Alabama's got a couple potentially elite players that elite players. There's guys like that. Ohio state's got an elite player in their class and they may get another one, uh, in the kid from Washington. So to me, Tying those two questions together is that's why you go for Dante Thornton. You think Ohio State would stop recruiting a Dante Thornton caliber player if they had the kind of class Notre Dame has now? No, they wouldn't. Clemson wouldn't. Ohio State wouldn't. Alabama wouldn't. You keep going after that guy. Doesn't mean you're not thrilled with the three you got because you should be. It's a very good class. But you put them plus you get Dante Thornton, and now all of a sudden when you put it with the two years that were of tight end where you've got Michael Mayer, Kevin Ballman, Kane Barong at tight end, you've got back-to-back running back years Actually, three running back classes of Kyron Williams. And then, of course, Chris Tyree, who's a stud. And then you got Logan Diggs, who I'm very high on. You got Drew Pine, a quarterback last year. You got Tyler Buckner, a quarterback this year. You got a very good offensive line class. Now, my frustration with the offensive line class in 2021 is relative to how good it should have been. But when you still look at it, it's still very good. And then you throw with Tosh Baker and Michael Carmody last year. Now you add a Dante Thornton into the conversation with the current class plus Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts from last year, that's one heck of an elite haul. That's the kind of haul of skill players and 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 quarterback that you say, that's, a, that's the kind of talent you can go win a championship with. Now go coach it up. And that's why I think Dante Thornton matters, and that's why Notre Dame needs to put all the chips in the table. Brian Kelly needs to be calling this kid all the time. Tommy Reese. Dell Alexander, Brian Polian, Lance Taylor, John McNulty. They need to they need to put the full court press on this kid like they've never put put the full court press on a, on an offensive recruit before. Flat out. And if they do that and they're doing what I don't know who you reported it. I don't maybe it was Tom Lloyd. It sounds like something Tom would would get scoop on. Uh, you know, but uh if that's being reported and they're talking to him every day, that's great. You cuz that's the kind of kid that can be a program changing receiver. He can be. He can have a Will Fuller impact. He can have a Michael Floyd impact. He can have a Golden Tate impact. He's that good of a player, in my opinion. And then when you put him on a team where he's got Deion Colsey, J- Jordan Johnson, Xavier Watts, Lorenzo Styles, uh, Jaden Thomas, and and Michael Mayer, and Kevin Ballman, and Chris Tyree, goodness gracious, that's some talent. And so yeah, you you put all your chips in the table and you go get Dante Thornton. Kevin P.S. says, I know you like Nolan Ziegler, uh, who's a 2021-22 linebacker commit from Michigan, 
and Sebastian Cheeks. Sebastian Cheeks is being is a linebacker from Illinois that I think Notre Dame is in great position for. And if I had to predict, I would say that ultimately they'll get him. My question is, does Notre Dame have a serious shot at a Jalen Smith caliber linebacker in the 2022 class? No, they do not, because right now there is no Jalen Smith caliber player in the 2022 class, uh, which was kind of the next part of his question. And then how good of a shot do we have at Thornton? I think right now Notre Dame trails Oregon, at least, and maybe another program. I've heard a couple different programs kind of mentioned as, as players for him, but I think he likes Notre Dame. He camped at Notre Dame a couple years ago. I know he's got a relationship with several players in Notre Dame. Uh, so I think Notre Dame's a player there. And if and if now that they've got all those guys already in the class, uh, you know, go, go for it. Go for it with Dante Thornton because there's just no reason not to. But if Notre Dame is able to get Sebastian Cheeks, a linebacker, to go with Nolan Ziegler, Notre Dame's going to have a chance to have a great, great linebacker class because there's a lot of other 2022 linebackers that they're already on that are very talented kids. And, and it's a, it seems to be a really good linebacker class. Uh, so Notre Dame making a run at some of those guys would be really impressive. And, and if you're able to put together the kind of class they could potentially do so, and Sebastian Cheeks being part of that, we could see Notre Dame make up for the low numbers we've seen at linebacker these last couple seasons. No question about that. All right, last of these football questions, and this is a college football question. At what point does Lincoln Riley realize that Oklahoma has to have a defense to be competitive? I don't care how good that offense is. Without a defense, you are always playing from behind. This blows my mind. I mean, it's like, what is your goal at Oklahoma? Is it just to win the Big 12 and to get to the the dance, and then you don't care how you do at the dance? After the manner in which Oklahoma has been absolutely embarrassed in the college football playoff the last couple times they've been there, it blows my mind that Lincoln Riley has so stubbornly been unwilling to make the changes that they need to make on defense. And it is so obvious that defense is a complement to the offense as opposed to doing what you need to do in practice to make sure that your defense is tackling well, is assignment sound, is getting the work they need to do, the emphasis they need to go out there and play better football. It's not like like Oklahoma lacks talent on defense. There are a lot of very very talented players on that defense. And they're just they're just not coached well. It's so obvious they're not coached well. I mean, you're just turning guys loose all the time. And there's a lot of dudes on that defense that Notre Dame wanted bad. And, you know, Trey Norwood, Woody Washington at corner, Pat Fields, Brennan Radley Hiles. I mean, there's some really good football players in that football team. And the fact that they're not able to get those guys playing at even a remotely high level is just bad coaching. It's as simple as that. It's just bad coaching. And I'm not saying they have to look like Clemson 2019 or 2018, but they need to be way better than they are. And it's embarrassing that they're as bad as they are. And that 100% falls on the shoulders of Lincoln Riley and and his and unwillingness to make the necessary change. So, okay, instead of averaging 50 points a game, we're going to average 42 points a game and we're going to drop our, you know, points per game allowed, you know, down to whatever the case may be because it's just embarrassing what we've seen from them. I mean, you know, last year what happened to them against, you know, LSU in the in the semifinals was just if that wasn't an eye-opening thing for a coach, I don't know what is. And and he it to me, again, this is an outsider, right? I don't know. I don't have any inside scoop, but just watching them play and I've watched, you know, their last two games. To me, it just looks like he looks at it as like, oh, well, eh, it's just a bad game. Uh, we'll get we'll get back at it. It's just a bad game. And it wasn't a bad game. It was it was it, another example of just what your program is. I mean, Alabama didn't even play that great against Oklahoma two years ago in the playoff and hung 45 on them. And that's when Oklahoma had a a, a true game-changer quarterback. 
you, you know, with, I mean, Kyler Murray, he was brilliant. I mean, he put that team on his back so many times that year. I mean, just to even get to the playoff, I mean, they had the, they had 704 yards of offense, scored 59 points at 7.8 yards per play at West Virginia, and they needed every single ounce of that because the defense gave up 56 points. They gave up 40 points to Kansas. 40 points to Kansas. You know, I mean, it's just embarrassing. And the fact that he hasn't really taken legitimate steps to, to fix that just, to me, takes a lot of the shine off of Lincoln Riley. And, yes, I know he's a great offensive mind, and that's going to make him a lot of money. I mean, heck, if Cliff Kingsbury can get a head coaching job in the NFL, you know, Lincoln Riley should be the highest-paid coach in the NFL, relatively speaking, when you when you think of the success he's had compared to what Cliff Kingsbury did, who I think had a losing record at Texas Tech. So he's he's got to make that change. He's got to do some things to figure out a way to, to be better on defense because they're never going to compete for a national championship if they don't play better on defense. Uh, here's an interesting question. Maltavius asks, uh, a seven-on-seven game between the all-decade team from 2010 to 2020. So that's all of Brian Kelly's. Uh, you know, So he said, three-o linemen, two receivers, a two-o linemen, either a third offensive lineman or a tight end. I'm going to go with the tight end. Two receivers, a running back, and a quarterback against two D linemen, either a D lineman or an outside linebacker. You'd go with the linebacker. A free safety, strong safety, cornerback, cornerback. My first thought was – that the offensive line or the offense would win, you know, because I'm looking at I'd have Everett Golson at quarterback. I'd have, you know, running back. I mean, I'm not sure. In seven on seven, I'd probably go with like a Theo Riddick, somebody like that. You know, you have Michael Floyd and Will Fuller at receiver. You'd have Tyler Eifert at tight end, and then you have like Mike McGlinchey and Quentin Nelson or Zach Martin and Quentin Nelson. So actually, I'd probably go Zach Martin and Quentin Nelson and it, maybe have Ronnie Stanley. I mean, you know, think about that. You'd have to leave one of those guys off. Some top 10 pick is not going to be in that group. But then I started thinking about it, and I said, you know, the offense has had way more talent than the defense consistently. But if you just look at the individual players on defense, it might be a little closer than I thought. So you D-line, you take two D-linemen. You know, I'm going Stephon Tuitt, right? I have to think about who my other guy would be. Khalid Kareem, Julian Aguara, Aaron Lynch, right? If it's just for one game, Aaron Lynch, Stephon Tuitt, it's pretty good. You know, uh, Jerry Tillery, first, you know, first round pick. Some pretty good players in there. Sheldon Day, Jalen Smith, my linebacker, free safety. There's this guy named Harrison, right? Harrison Smith, uh, he's pretty good. You know, your strong safety. Uh, you want to go with Alohi Gilman? You know, do you want to? You know, who? Do you, it's pretty good. Cornerback Julian Love. Who else are you gonna pick? You gonna go with Kavari Russell, Cole Luke, uh, Robert Blanton? Some pretty good players in that. Troy Pride. So, so I, I think it'd be a fun matchup. I think at the end of the day, though, I'd say. The offensive firepower, when you look at like Michael Floyd, Will Fuller, and Tyler Eifert on the same unit with Everett Golson throwing him the ball, and Quentin Nelson, and either some combination of Zach Martin, Mike McGlinchey, Ronnie Stanley blocking for him, Lee Meikenberg blocking for him. Uh, did I mention Tyler Eifert at tight end? <laughs> that's pretty good. So I think ultimately that would win, but that's a really good question. I, I was At first it was a no-brainer offense, but then I started thinking about who those defensive guys would be, and I'm like, ooh. You know, Stephon Tuitt and either Aaron Lynch or Sheldon Day with Jalen Smith and Harrison Smith, that's pretty flipping good. And guess who I didn't have on there? Manti, because it was a seven-on-seven, and I didn't really have an inside linebacker. So uh, that was an interesting one. Last one, uh, Blue and Gold 45. Uh, Hey, Brian, I am finishing my first year as an assistant football coach for a small high school varsity team. I plan on coaching again next fall while finishing my undergrad in psychology. Uh, That's a great major for a football coach, and I'm dead serious. I plan on doing my master's in industrial and organizational psychology. 
Uh, I have recently began looking into becoming a graduate assistant. I was in varsity football captain and had interest in several NAIA and Division II schools but did not pursue football in college. My question is, what do schools look for when picking GAs and who and would you not playing in college hurt my resume? Uh, thanks. I think it depends on the school. I think with a lot of schools, it will uh, hurt your resume. Uh, I would say that if you are looking to do industrial and organizational psychology, uh, being a GA is going to be challenging because a lot of places you're there as a GA, you're there to coach, not get a degree in organization, you know, industrial organization psychology. So what I would look to do is, you know, what level do you want to coach? Do you want to coach high school? Do you want to coach college? Um, you know, I think that as you work on your master's, find a school that's going to give you the best master's you can and, and give you the best opportunities to make a living with that major. Okay. Uh, and then if that school has a football team, see if you can be a, a volunteer assistant. Uh, if there's a, if that school doesn't have a, a football team, but there's a local school that does or a school nearby that does, see if you can be a, see if you can find an opportunity to be a, a volunteer assistant. It's going to be hard to get a, a GA job because coaching jobs are so limited in that regards with a lot of places. Now, that doesn't mean you can't, so keep trying. It doesn't mean you don't apply. I just means expand your options a little bit. Look into you know, possibly being a volunteer coach because the reality is if you go there and you're a volunteer coach and you, you prove your chops, then then the word is going to spread. You're going to have that on your on your resume. Those coaches that you work with that you busted your butt for uh, will say good words about you. Plus, if you're not a GA, it gives you a little bit more freedom to make decisions that are academically oriented. So if they're not paying you and you pay a graduate assistant, not only do you do you pay the money he, he that you're going to give him um, – uh, you know, to be a graduate student, because they get they get a stipend, but also you know you're you're biting the bullet on the cost for him to be in the grad school. But if you're just a student assistant, you say, hey, look, I can't I can't be there on this Tuesday of whatever because I have a a big you know presentation I have to do or something like that. They're going to be a lot more understanding of that if you're a student assistant uh, or a volunteer than if you are a a full time. So that's what I would look into doing. Uh, still doesn't mean you don't apply, but I would I would pick the school that is best for you academically. And then find an opportunity to where you can be around the staff, you can learn, you can, you know, show your chops, you can pick their brains, and then and then you can kind of see what opportunities kind of to come open that way, whether it's being a volunteer. To, I mean, when I coached D3, we would have locals that were teachers or, you know, were psychiatrists or whatever, psychologists, and they would come to practice and volunteer their time. They would meet with us and they'd do game playing, so they got to coach football, but that they had their careers and their professions. If you want to make a career out of coaching at the higher levels, then your focus needs to be on coaching and finding a place that's going to give you that opportunity. But it still may have to be through a volunteer uh, direction uh, because there's just going to be some people going to look at you not playing and say, you know, that guy, that guy didn't play. So we're, we're going to take a chance on a guy that did play who comes recommended from coach so-and-so that I know that says this guy is going to be a good coach. Uh, but again, that's not meant to discourage you because there are a lot of coaches who got their starts as volunteers and they had to go prove themselves. And if you think you have the chops to do it, then really all you need is your foot in the door, whether it's as a volunteer, whether it's as a ball boy, whatever it is. If you think you have the chops, take whatever the best opportunity you can to learn. That's the biggest thing is to be around people to learn. And one of the most you know, meaningful things for me in my career was my first couple jobs, I didn't have a ton of responsibility. My first coaching job, in fact, I, I was the tight ends coach in an offense that I think maybe threw five passes all year, the tight ends. And I also coached quarterbacks, but it was a team where we had 10 quarterbacks. So I took the bottom five and I would work with them. 
right? But the thing for me was I was around some great coaches. You know, Joe Fincham was our head coach. He's still the head coach at Wittenberg University now. I learned a lot about football and a lot about coaching from Joe Fincham. Uh, Scott Isferding was our offensive coordinator. I think he's a quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator in the MAC somewhere now. You know, I learned a lot from Scott. And it was a, even though I wasn't necessarily coaching a ton in my coaching, you know, I ran the scout team a lot. And a lot of things that, that I learned from Coach Fincham on how to prepare the scout team to then help prepare your offense were tremendous learning lessons. And at first I didn't want to do I'm like, oh, I'm a freaking run a scout team. Like, you know, my ego got in the way. But then when you realize, like, wow, you know, he would have me come up with D- – I remember one day in practice he said to me, you know, we were going to play a really good team. And he said, hey, I want you to just throw everything you can at us. You know, just come up with any – it doesn't have to be something you saw on film. Just come up with anything. I want – you know, because the, the point being, when we get to Saturday – I, I, there, there's nothing that they can do that we're not going to be prepared for. I learned a lot from stuff like that. And and then my second job was with Mike Donnelly, who who unfortunately passed away within the last couple of years uh, of cancer. He was a guy that I have said he could have been a Division One coach if he wanted to, but he wanted to – he stayed – he was a defense coordinator at Columbia, I believe, when Marcellus Wally was there. But he – for him, it was more important to be a dad and a husband than it was to be a Division One coach. So he stayed at the D3 level, made good money, stayed at Muhlenberg his whole career until he had to retire because of his illness and then passed away. But I learned so much from him about being a coach and about being a man and about being a, a, a husband as a coach and just so many things. So, you know, and even working summer camps around Urban Meyer. I remember, you know, one year I was hanging around Bowling Green during, their, during spring ball. I just went up there and just – I was a sponge, man. Dan Mullen would, would go around with me, went to a couple bars and just talked ball. And I learned, I learned things from him in just a week that stuck with me my whole career. Just little you know, coaching tips and, and, and relationship-wise and, and how to talk to players in a way to get them to find the answer. Because if they have to work through the process to find the answer, it's going to be a whole lot better for them than you just giving it to them, like a teacher. And so those are the things I'll say is being around people that can teach and that you can learn from is so much more important than having a title of a GA or whatever else. So if you find somebody that can that, that will allow you to learn and get those opportunities, uh, that's more important than, than having yourself locked into I have to be a GA somewhere. Because if you have the chops and you're around people where you can learn and they can help you harness those, that ability, your time will come if you're willing to pay your dues. Uh, and so that's what I would, hopefully that helps you. And I hope it's encouraging and, um, and that would be my advice. So that's going to be it for today's show. I want to thank you all for tuning in. We'll have plenty of action going on the site tomorrow as we sit around and wait for Notre Dame and Florida state tomorrow at seven 30 Eastern on NBC. Uh, we'll have some things on what to look for. We'll have a wrap up content for all of the week's action at irishbreakdown.com. So all the analysis, you'll have all day tomorrow to get caught up on it. So make sure that you do. Uh, and so for the rest of the Irish Breakdown staff, I want to thank you all for being a part of who we are and what we're doing. We have been the number two college site in the entire network for the last month. And we have really, really grown. September was by far our best month. And I'm hoping that we can pick things up here to make October our next best month so we can top that original number. So, uh, But that only happens with you guys. So if uh, you're not on the site a lot and you're just doing the podcast, do both, baby. Come on. And if you're on the uh, the site, definitely make sure you're listening to all of our podcasts because we want to really keep this sucker growing and keep building our community. So have a great, safe rest of your Friday. Have a great, safe rest of your Saturday. Enjoy college football. And then, of course, tomorrow night, make sure you're cheering on your Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Let's go.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.